Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Adventure of the Three Students, by author Conan Doyle. It was in the year 95 that a combination of events, into which I need not enter, caused Mr. Sherlock Holmes and myself to spend some weeks in one of our great university towns. And it was during this time that the small but instructive adventure which I am about to relate befell us. It will be obvious that any details which would help the reader to exactly identify the college or the criminal would be injudicious and offensive. So painful a scandal may well be allowed to die out. With due discretion, the incident itself may, however, be described, since it serves to illustrate some of those qualities for which my friend was remarkable. I will endeavor in my statement to avoid such terms as would serve to limit the events to any particular place or give a clue as to the people concerned. We were residing at the time in furnished lodgings close to a library where Sherlock Holmes was pursuing some laborious researches in early English charters, researches which led to results so striking that they may be the subject of one of my future narratives. Here it was that one evening we received a visit from an acquaintance, Mr. Hilton Soames, tutor and lecturer at the College of St. Luke's. Mr. Soames was a tall, spare man of a nervous and excitable temperament. I had always known him to be restless in his manner, but on this particular occasion he was in such a state of uncontrollable agitation that it was clear something very unusual had happened. I trust, Mr. Holmes, that you can spare me a few hours of your valuable time. We have had a very painful incident at St. Luke's, and really, but for the happy chance of your being in the town, I should have been at a loss what to do. I am very busy just now, and I desire no distractions, my friend answered. I should much prefer that you called in the aid of the police. No, no, my dear sir, such a course is utterly impossible. When once the law is evoked, it cannot be stayed again, and this is just one of those cases where, for the credit of the college, it is most essential to avoid scandal. Your discretion is as well known as your powers, and you are the one man in the world who can help me. I beg you, Mr. Holmes, to do what you can." My friend's temper had not improved since he had been deprived of the congenial surroundings of Baker Street. Without his scrapbooks, his chemicals, and his homely untidiness, he was an uncomfortable man. He shrugged his shoulders in ungracious acquiescence, while our visitor, with much hurried words and with much excitable gesticulation, poured forth his story. I must explain to you, Mr. Holmes, that tomorrow was the first day of the examination for the Fortescue Scholarship. I am one of the examiners. My subject is Greek, and the first of the papers consists of a large passage of Greek translation which the candidate has not seen. 
This passage is printed on the examination paper and it would naturally be an immense advantage if the candidate could prepare it in advance. For this reason, great care is taken to keep the paper secret. Today, about 3 o'clock, the proofs of this paper arrive from the printers. The exercise consists of half a chapter of Thucydides. I had to read it over carefully as the text must be absolutely correct. At 4.30, my task was not yet completed. I had, however, promised to take tea in a friend's rooms, so I left the proof upon my desk. I was absent rather more than an hour. You are aware, Mr. Holmes, that our college doors are double, a green baize one within and a heavy oak one without. As I approached my outer door, I was amazed to see a key in it. For an instant, I imagined that I had left my own there, but on feeling in my pocket, I found that I was all right. The only duplicate which existed, so far as I knew, was that which belonged to my servant, Bannister, a man who has looked after my room for ten years, and whose honesty is absolutely above suspicion. I found that the key was indeed his, that he had entered my room to know if I wanted tea, and that he had very carelessly left the key in the door when he came out. His visit to my room must have been within a very few minutes of my leaving it. His forgetfulness about the key would have mattered little upon any other occasion, but on this one day it has produced the most deplorable consequences. The moment I looked at my table I was aware that someone had rummaged among my papers. The proof was in three long slips. I had left them all together. Now I found that one of them was lying on the floor, one was on the side table near the window, and a third was where I had left it. Holmes stirred for the first time. The first page on the floor, the second in the window, the third where you left it, said he. Exactly, Mr. Holmes, you amaze me. How could you possibly know that? Pray continue your very interesting statement. For an instant I imagined that Bannister had taken the unpardonable liberty of examining my papers. He denied it, however, with the utmost earnestness, and I am convinced that he was speaking the truth. The alternative was that someone passing had observed the key in the door, had known that I was out, and had entered to look at the papers. A large sum of money is at stake, for the scholarship is a very valuable one, and an unscrupulous man might very well run a risk in order to gain an advantage over his fellows. Bannister was very much upset by the incident. He had nearly fainted when we found that the papers had undoubtedly been tampered with. I gave him a little brandy and left him collapsed in a chair while I made a most careful examination of the room. I soon saw that the intruder had left other traces of his presence besides the rumpled papers. On the table in the window were several shreds from a pencil which had been sharpened. A broken tip of lead was lying there also. Evidently the rascal had copied the paper in a great hurry, had broken his pencil, and had been compelled to put a fresh point to it. "'Excellent!' said Holmes, who was recovering his good humor as his attention became more engrossed by the case. "'Fortune has been your friend.' "'This was not all. I have a new writing table with a fine surface of red leather. I am prepared to swear, and so is Bannister, that it was smooth and unstained. Now I've found a clean cut in it about three inches long, not a mere scratch, but a positive cut.' Not only this, but on the table I found a small ball of black dough, of clay, with specks of something which looks like sawdust in it. I am convinced that these marks were left by the man who rifled the papers. There were no footmarks and no other evidence as to his identity. 
I was at my wit's ends when suddenly the happy thought occurred to me that you were in the town. And I came straight round to put the matter into your hands. Do help me, Mr. Holmes. You see my dilemma. Either I must find the man, or else, or else the examination must be postponed until fresh papers are prepared. And since this cannot be done without explanation, there will ensue a hideous scandal which will throw a cloud not only on the college, but on the university. Above all things, I desire to settle this matter quietly and discreetly. I shall be happy to look into it and to give you such advice as I can, said Holmes, rising and putting on his overcoat. The case is not entirely devoid of interest. Had anyone visited you in your room after the papers came to you? Yes, young Dalit Ross, an Indian student who lives on the same stair, came in to ask me some particulars about the exam. For which he was entered? Yes. And the papers were on your table. To the best of my belief, they were rolled up. But they might be recognized as proofs. Possibly. No one else in your room? No. Did anyone know that these proofs would be there? No one save the printer. Did this man Bannister know? No, certainly not. No one knew. Where is Bannister now? He was very ill, poor fellow. I left him collapsed in the chair. I was in such a hurry to come to you. You left your door open? I locked up the papers first. And then it amounts to this, Mr. Soames, that unless the Indian student recognized the role as being proofs, the man who tampered with them came upon them accidentally without knowing that they were there. So it seems to me. Holmes gave an enigmatic smile. Well said he. Let us go round. Not one of your cases, Watson. Mental, not physical. All right, come if you want to. Now, Mr. Soames, at your disposal. The sitting room of our client opened by a long, low, latticed window onto the ancient lichen-tinted court of the old college. A gothic arched door led to a worn stone staircase. On the ground floor was the tutor's room. Above were three students, one on each story. It was already twilight when we reached the scene of our problem. Holmes halted and looked earnestly at the window. Then he approached it, and standing on tiptoe with his neck craned, he looked into the room. He must have entered through the door. There's no opening except for the one pane, said our learned guide. Dear me, said Holmes, and he smiled in a singular way as he glanced at our companion. Well, if there's nothing to be learned here, we had best go inside. The lecturer unlocked the outer door and ushered us into his room. We stood at the entrance while Holmes made an examination of the carpet. I am afraid there are no signs here, said he. One could hardly hope for any upon so dry a day. Your servant seems to have quite recovered. You left him in a chair, you say. Which chair? By the window there. I see. Near this little table. You can come in now. I have finished with the carpet. Let us take the little table first. Of course. 
What has happened is very clear. The man entered and took the papers sheet by sheet from the central table. He carried them over to the window table because from there he could see if you came across the courtyard and so could effect an escape. As a matter of fact, he could not, said Soames, for I entered by the side door. Ah, that's good. Well, anyhow, that was in his mind. Let me see the three strips. No finger impressions. No. Well, he carried over this one first and he copied it. How long would it take him to do that, using every possible contraction? A quarter of an hour, not less. Then he tossed it down and seized the next. It was in the midst of that when your return caused him to make a very hurried retreat. Very hurried, since he had no time to replace the papers, which should tell you that he had been there. You were not aware of any hurrying feet on the stair as you entered the outer door. No, I can't say I was. Well, he wrote so furiously that he broke his pencil, and had, as you observed, to sharpen it again. This is of interest, Watson. The pencil was not an ordinary one. It was above the usual size, with the soft lead. The outer color was dark blue, the maker's name was printed in silver lettering, and the piece remaining is only about an inch and a half long. Look for such a pencil, Mr. Soames, and you have got your man. When I add that he possesses a large and very blunt knife, you have an additional aid. Mr. Soames was somewhat overwhelmed by this flood of information. I can follow the other points, said he, but really, in this manner of the length, Holmes held out a small chip with the letters N.N., and a space of clear wood after them. You see? No. I fear that even now, Watson... I have always done you an injustice. There are others. What could this NN be? It is at the end of a word. You are aware that Johann Faber is the most common maker's name. Is it not clear that there is just as much of the pencil left as usually... Follows the Johann? He held the small table sideways to the electric light. I was hoping that if the paper on which he wrote was thin, some trace foot might come through upon this polished surface. No, I see nothing. I don't think there is anything more to be learned here. Now for the central table. This small pellet is, I presume, the black doughy mass you spoke of. Roughly pyramidal in shape, and hollowed out, I perceive. As you say, there appears to be grains of sawdust in it. Dear me, this is very interesting. And the cut, a positive tear, I see. It began with a thin scratch and ended in a jagged hole. I am much indebted to you for directing my attention to this case, Mr. Soames. Where does that door lead to? To my bedroom. Have you been in it since your adventure? No, I came straight away for you. I should like to have a glance round. What a charming old-fashioned room. Perhaps you will kindly wait a minute until I have examined the floor. No, I see nothing. What about this curtain? You hang your clothes behind it. 
If anyone were forced to conceal himself in this room, he must do it there, since the bed is too low and the wardrobe too shallow. No one there, I suppose. As Holmes drew the curtain, I was aware, from some little rigidity and alertness of his attitude, that he was prepared for an emergency. As a matter of fact, the drawn curtain disclosed nothing but three or four suits of clothes hanging from a line of pegs. Holmes turned away and stooped suddenly to the floor. Hello? What's this? said he. It was a small pyramid of black, putty-like stuff, exactly like the one upon the table of the study. Holmes held it out in his open palm in the glare of the electric light. Your visitor seems to have left traces in your bedroom as well as in your sitting room, Mr. Soames. What could he have wanted there? I think it is clear enough. You came back by an unexpected way, and so he had no warning until you were at the very door. What could he do? He caught up everything which would betray him, and he rushed into your bedroom to conceal himself. Good gracious, Mr. Holmes! Do you mean to tell me that all the time I was talking to Bannister in this room, we had the man prisoner if we had only known it? So I read it. Surely there's another alternative, Mr. Holmes. I don't know whether you observed my bedroom window. Lattice paned, uh, lead framework, three separate windows, one swinging on hinge and large enough to admit a man. Exactly, and it looks out on an angle of the courtyard so as to be partly invisible. The man might have affected his entrance there, left traces as he passed through the bedroom, and finally, finding the door open, have escaped that way. Holmes shook his head impatiently. Let us be practical, said he. I understand you to say that there are three students who use this stair and are in the habit of passing your door. Yes, there are. And they are all in for this examination? Yes. Have you any reason to suspect any one of them more than the others? Soames hesitated. It's a very delicate question, said he. One hardly likes to throw suspicion where there are no proofs. Let us hear the suspicions. I will look after the proofs. I will tell you, then, in a few words, the character of the three men who inhabit these rooms. The lower of the three is Gilchrist, a fine scholar and athlete, plays in the rugby team and the cricket team for the college, and got his blue for the hurdles and the long jump. He is a fine, manly fellow. His father was the notorious Sir Jabez Gilchrist, who ruined himself on the turf. My scholar has been left very poor, but he is hard-working and industrious. He will do well. The second floor is inhabited by Dalat Ross, the Indian. He is a quiet and scrutable fellow. He is well up in his work, although his Greek is his weak subject. He is steady and methodical. The top floor belongs to Miles McLaren. He's a brilliant fellow when he chooses to work. One of the brightest intellects of the university, but he's wayward, dissipated, and unprincipled. He was nearly expelled over a card scandal in his first year. He's been idling all this term, and he must look forward with dread to the examination. Then it is he whom you suspect. I dare not go as far as that. But of the three, he is perhaps the least unlikely. Exactly. Now, Mr. Soames, let us have a look at your servant, Bannister. 
He was a little, white-faced, clean-shaven, grizzly-haired fellow of fifty. He was still suffering from this sudden disturbance of the quiet routine of his life. His plump face was twitching with his nervousness, and his fingers could not keep still. We are investigating this unhappy business, Bannister, said his master. Yes, sir. I understand, said Holmes, that you left your key in the door. Yes, sir. Was it not very extraordinary that you should do this on the very day when there were these papers inside? It was most unfortunate, sir, but I have occasionally done the same thing at other times. When did you enter the room? It was about half past four. That is Mr. Soames' tea time. How long did you stay? When I saw that he was absent, I withdrew at once. Did you look at these papers on the table? No, sir, certainly not. How came you to leave the key in the door? I had the tea tray in my hand. I thought I would come back for the key. Then I forgot. Has the outer door a spring lock? No, sir. Then it was open all the time. Yes, sir. Anyone in the room could get out. Yes, sir. When Mr. Soames returned and called for you, you were very much disturbed. Yes, sir. Such a thing has never happened during the many years that I've been here. I nearly fainted, sir. So I understand. Where were you when you began to feel bad? Where was I, sir? Why, here, near the door. That is singular, because you sat down in that chair over yonder near the corner. Why did you pass these other chairs? I don't know, sir. It didn't matter to me where I sat. I really don't think he knew much about it, Mr. Holmes. He was looking very bad, quite ghastly. You stayed here when your master left. Only for a minute or so, then I locked the door and went to my room. Whom do you suspect? Oh, I would not venture to say, sir. I don't believe there is any gentleman in this university who's capable of profiting by such an action. No, sir, I'll not believe it. Thank you. That will do, said Holmes. Oh, one more word. You have not mentioned to any of the three gentlemen whom you attend that anything is amiss? No, sir, not a word. You haven't seen any of them? No, sir. Very good. Now, Mr. Soames, we will take a walk in the quadrangle, if you please. Three yellow squares of light shone above us in the gathering gloom. Your three birds are all in their nests, said Holmes, looking up. Hello. What's that? One of them seems restless enough. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one. And if you know of one, let us know. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel with selected stories from the podcast. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. 
Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>